Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, page 826, 827 in the Bibles there in the seats. Uh, Barb and I had the opportunity to be away for a week. Uh, we've gone back to the same place. We go for vacation all the time down to Stone Harbor in New Jersey. And uh, we're just talking and we were remembering that, you know, a few years ago, we would look at people and we would say, you know, older people, and we would say, someday that's going to be us. Well, this year that was us. Uh, Barb had her knees replaced, and she was kind of hobbling around, and uh, uh, my heart still isn't, you know, up to speed, and I have to have another procedure, and uh, I was diagnosed recently with uh, ocular myasthenia gravis, which is a big-sounding thing, which means that my eyes don't focus right. So if you see me up here, and I've got, like, one eye closed, and one, it's not that I'm winking at my wife because she's back in church. <laughs> It's just that that's the way I can see more clearly, and so I can read my notes and so on and so forth. So, um, I found myself uh, pretty upset this past week by uh, the passing of Robin Williams. I don't know about you, but um, I, I guess you know I really liked some of the roles that uh, he had played and and the way that he acted and so forth. And I, I kind of wanted to think of him that he was really that way. Like if you thought about Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, the extremes he went through to be with his kids kind of thing. And uh, so I was really upset, you know. Um, I wanted to believe that's who he really was, but my little image of him uh, was shattered by what he did. And so um, this morning, I'd like to just kind of ask you a question to start our time together in Matthew chapter 21. Um, when you form an opinion about somebody, what's more important to you? What a person says or what a person does. What's more important in forming your opinion about people? And what happens when what a person says doesn't match what they do? What happens when a person comes to church and sings a song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, but then really shuts down their heart and keeps it away from ever being messed with by God? What happens when what we say and what we sing and what we kind of broadcast uh, is different from what we do? Well, Jesus tells a story about a father who has two sons. And um, he tells this story during the very last week of his life, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And so, you know, Jesus has had his three-year ministry, is approaching the cross and, and so forth. It's the last week of his life. And Jesus, that week, if you remember, had gone to the temple and uh, when he got to the temple, he saw that the, the temple, the church in Jerusalem there, had, had become a place of commerce. And uh, there were a lot of people buying and selling, and like, like that's what the action was. And so Jesus goes ballistic. You might remember he takes the tables, and he turns them over, and he makes a whip, and he chases the buyers and the sellers you know, out of the uh, temple. And he says in Matthew chapter 21, verse uh, 13, he says this. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. You've turned it into a commercial enterprise. And um, I think prayer is probably the single most primary expression of dependence upon God. Every Thursday morning through the summer, we've been gathering. A few of us have come together on Thursday mornings at 6.30 in the library to pray for our church and to pray for the needs of the people that we're aware of in our church. Uh, prayer is probably the primary, you know, um, expression of our dependence and our trust uh, on God. And so 
the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the faith there, uh, they're uh, upset by this, verse uh, 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they asked him a question. They say to him, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Haven't you ever read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, uh, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city uh, to Bethany, and he lodged there. The next day, uh, Jesus comes back, and the chief priests and the uh, leaders of the temple have been up all night. And Jesus comes back, and uh, they confront him. The, the opposition to Jesus has been growing over you know, the three years that Jesus has been ministering. And, uh, but this clearing out the temple is kind of the uh, straw that breaks the camel's back. And so he comes back the next day in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They're questioning him. I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but who do you think you are to be doing these things? Who do you think you are? They question his identity. Uh, who gave you the authority to come in here and mess with our vested interests, right? Um, who are you and who do you think you are? By what authority? And it's interesting that uh, Jesus answers with a question. And Jesus uh, turns around, verse 24, and he says to them, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, this is really a fascinating passage of scripture here in Matthew chapter 21. It's remarkable because Jesus is surrounded by leaders of Israel who failed to do what God asked them to do. And Jesus is going to compel them to pronounce a guilty sentence on themselves and to actually, you know, pass a sentence. Uh, not only will they find themselves uh, guilty, but they will actually pass a sentence on himself before they even realize that Jesus is talking about them. And you know how he does it? He tells a couple stories. And they get so sucked into the story and they see the moral of the story so clearly that they don't see that he's talking about them. Until all the way, verse 45. Uh, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his stories, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Has that ever happened to you? You ever been in a conversation where, you know, you just see the right and wrong of some issue that somebody else is talking about, and all of a sudden it dawns on you, my goodness, God is talking to me through this situation. Uh, I love it when that happens because, you know, you're kind of caught out, and you're just kind of there before the Lord, and you know that the Lord is talking to you. The spirit inside of you just convicts you that this is meant for you, even though the people that are talking don't even uh, probably realize it, you see? And so... Um, he turns this whole thing around on them by telling these two stories. The leaders are questioning his authority in verse uh, 24 and, and so forth. And, and Jesus goes all the way back to John the Baptist. Why? Why go back to John the Baptist? Well, because John the Baptist was the first person who revealed Jesus' true identity. And while there were a lot of people, Jewish people, who believed John the Baptist, this, behold, the Son of God... Uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the people believed. The leaders didn't believe because everything that they cherished was threatened. Uh, but the Jewish leaders would refuse to believe. And so John's ministry, John the Baptist, his whole ministry culminated in revealing the Jewish Messiah. 
And uh, the leaders wouldn't believe it. And so Jesus says, well, John's baptism, was that from heaven? Or was that just a man-made thing? So these leaders now are in a tough spot. And uh, they, they realize they're in a tough spot. Uh, it says here that they discussed it among themselves. And they said, you know, if we say from heaven, well, then Jesus is going to say to us, then why didn't you believe John? But if we say from man... We're afraid of the crowd because the crowd all holds that John was really a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Wimps. You ever get stuck in a situation like that where you know the truth, but you're afraid of the audience? And you're afraid to come out and say what you really know to be the truth about something? Because you're just afraid of the audience. And then you just say, well, I don't know. And you uh, miss the opportunity, you know. These leaders had the profession of being the men of God, right? But they didn't have the possession. They had the reputation for being the people of God, but they didn't have the requirements. They had the talk, but they didn't have the truth. And Jesus is exposing them. And so Jesus asked them, he says, what do you think? What do you think? He says, what's your opinion? You tell me, what do you think about this situation? And then he tells his story. And when they give their opinion, when they say what they think, they're right on, they're spot on. Jesus is like, that's exactly right. You got it. Why can't you apply it to yourself? And so Jesus begins to tell this um, story. And uh, he tells two stories in a row. We'll just look at the first one. But uh, both of these stories have to do with a vineyard. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, the whole nation of Israel is compared to the many places in the Old Testament where Israel is compared to God's vineyard. And uh, it's kind of a metaphor. Uh, it comes from Isaiah chapter 5 and other places. But notice in verse 28, Jesus um, tells his story. He says, what do you think? A father, a man, had two sons. And he went to the first son and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the kid said, no, I will not. I'm not doing it. But afterwards, he changed his mind. And he went. He repented. And he went to his other son, and he said the same thing. He said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And the other son said, I go, sir, but did not go. But did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of the father? That's Jesus' story. Father with two kids, the one kid says, I won't do it, repents and goes and works. The other kid says, sure, I'll go, and never goes. Which one did the will of the father? And so they say, the first. And Jesus said to them, and this is a shocker. This is, a, this is like dropping a bomb on these people, but they don't think they get it at the beginning. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, the religious leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds. You did not repent and believe him. Even afterwards, when you saw what Jesus did and who he was and how he handled uh, things and so forth. So... The son who professed to obey but didn't do it represents these Jewish leaders. These people who say all the right things and who have the reputation for being God's people, 
but who reject the prophets of God. The other son at first says no, but then he repents, represents the despised, the sinful, the tax collectors who were hated by the Jewish people, and the prostitutes, those who initially say to God, morally at least, you know what? No, I'm not going to live your way. I'm going to live my own life. I'll take what I can get from you and go and live my own way. And uh, at first they rebel, but later at the teaching of John and at the encounters with Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, they repent and they become workers in God's vineyard. They become people who think of the woman at the well who had five husbands. Immediately she becomes a worker in the vineyard. She goes and she gets everybody else and she says, come and hear this man who told me everything there is to know about my life. Could this be the Messiah? Get to work in the vineyard right away. It's a privilege. Uh, for those who are in the kingdom, to work in the kingdom. And so um, these people become workers while the others don't. And so this really is a story not about becoming a Christian, but about living the Christian life. This is about following the will of God. It's about our response when God comes to us and says, go to work in my vineyard. You know, there's a lot to be done. And I think it's pretty easy, you know, um, I think many places in the Bible, God is looking for the surrender of our will. It's easy to agree with him. It's easy to say I'm amen. It's easy to come to church and sing songs. Uh, but when it comes to surrendering our will and doing what he asks us to do, um, a lot of times we hesitate. And that's why I think Jesus told this story. And I think it's pretty easy to draw Jesus' story over into the church today, right? There are still two sons or two responses uh, to the Great Commission. Jesus, before he left, he said, look, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I've taught you. Go, you know? And there's two responses. There's some people who just say, sure, great. And there's other people who say, nah, that's, I'm really not interested in that. I've got other plans uh, for my life. Um, and so uh, the people who say, sure, they come to church, they sing the songs, um, they study the scriptures that reveal God's will. They'll say amen at the end and so forth. They might be very polite. They might make promises, but they don't keep them. And don't really give serious thought to, am I making a disciple any place? Am I making a difference in anybody else's life that's got eternal consequences to it? Am I in any way investing what God has given me in somebody else so that I can make a disciple. I can make a follower of Jesus. I can lead somebody who's far from God to Christ and then lead somebody who's a believer into becoming a committed God-first person. I think you can join a church. I think you can get a good reputation as a Christian. I think you can become a pastor and you can be a missionary and say all the right things and people will think you're great just by saying the right things. But still, you could be disobedient to the very will of God. And what God is calling us to do, to go into the world and to make, you know, uh, disciples for him. Uh, the, just like, you know, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can be active in all kinds of good things and still not believe that Jesus really is the Son of God who deserves us to surrender our will to this Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, have this respect for him that causes us to recognize him for who he really uh, is. Uh, other people are like the other son who says, you know, no way, 
and they're rebellious and they reject his standards like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and so forth. But eventually they have some kind of encounter with the truth, with the gospel, with Jesus. And um, even though they initially say no, uh, somehow uh, they repent, they change. And this encounter with the gospel uh, causes them to become believers. The spirit of God empowers them, transforms their lives. Forgiveness sets them free. Grace overwhelms them. The love of the father empowers them. And these people want to serve in the vineyard. These people want the message that set them free to get into the next person. And these people are anxious and excited, in fact, to um, communicate and to work in the, vine in the vineyard. They see it as a, a privilege. And I would tell you, it's never too late to repent. It doesn't matter whether you're like the first son or like the second son. It's never too late to repent, to change. Uh, this son who says no way uh, reminds me of young people. I bet in the two sons, he was the youngest one. And, um, you know, young people often have a bent to go and do their own thing and go their own way and so forth and, and think to themselves, you know, I'll deal with God later. Right now I've got all of life in front of me, you know, and I'll just deal with God, you know, sometime later, tomorrow. And uh, I don't want to work in the vineyard. I, I, I just want to have fun. But guess what happens, young people? When you refuse God when you're young, you begin to miss out on opportunities by which God can prepare you for when you get older. And uh, when you finally do get around to repenting, if you ever do, uh, often you aren't as prepared as you could have been. Plus, you know, when you get older, you don't have the same level of energy that you have when you're in your prime. And you don't have the same resources to be able to offer uh, to God. And so I would say the best way to live is to listen to the call of God on your life and obey it today. To serve God both early and later in life, both now and then, and uh, one of the things about uh, sin is that it entraps you and it, 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 it gets control of you to the point where you don't want to work in the vineyard uh, as you get older and so forth. And that assumes that God invites you again, you know, to work in the vineyard on a different day. Um, it doesn't get easier. It might not be easy to say yes today, to change, to repent, to follow through. But I can tell you the truth. It won't get easier tomorrow. It won't be easier the next day. Um, it's interesting, in verse 28, um, where Jesus uh, tells this story, um, he says, you know, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And so I'd like to just kind of pick that statement apart a little bit and think about what God is saying to us today. Because, first of all, you notice there's work to be done. There's work to be done. If the kingdom of God, the influence of God, the rule of God is going to come into the kingdom of this world and make a difference and change people's lives, there's a lot of work to be done. I don't know about you, but I feel like we're losing the fight. I feel like, you know, the culture is going further and further and further away from God all the time because it's work. And Jesus says, go and work in the vineyard. And I would suggest to you that um, there's a lot of work to be done. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, Jesus says this. This is Jesus' perspective when he was here. He says, look, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot that can be gleaned. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. The people willing to work and get into the vineyard. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. The spiritual needs are everywhere, right? 
Who is going to teach children the truth about God? Who is going to love kids into the arms of Jesus? Who's going to help parents know how to shepherd their kids for Christ? Who's going to give time to befriend teens? So I'm so thankful for Mark uh, Knudsen. You know, 23 years he's been working with our young people. Who knows the influence that he's had on the numbers of young people that have come through, you know, our program over 23 years. And he's hung in there, 23 years. Who's going to live their lives vulnerable enough to say, follow me, I'm a God-first person, and give a teenager a model to follow? Who's going to do that? It's work. Isn't it work to sacrifice and to say, well, I can't do this because I want to be an example to the kids who are following me? It's work. Who's going to uh, convince seniors, senior citizens, who've lived most of their lives deceived by believing lies, that it's not too late to repent? You know, our group of churches has a place called Elam Park up in Cheshire, Connecticut. It's a retirement home. And we had a stretch for three years uh, recently. In three years, 70 people came to Christ in those three years before they died. But it's work. It's work. It takes time to go and befriend and to sit down and to explain the truth over against the lies that somebody has embraced for their whole life. But it can be done. 70 people in three years in heaven instead of hell. You know, who's going to um, commit to one another groups to encourage us and to pray for us when the enemy is trying to silence us. There's so much work to be done. Who's going to resource? Who's going to uh, provide the prayer cover? And notice something here. I think this is so uh, interesting. You know, God, in, in the story that Jesus tells, the father just says, go and work in the vineyard. He doesn't give any specifics. He doesn't say, go pull weeds, go move rocks, go plant new seeds. He just says, go work in the vineyard. You take the first step. You surrender your will. You offer yourself to God. And when you take the first step, then God will give you the second step. A lot of times people will ask, you know, how can I know God's will for my life? I'll tell you how. Take the first step. The first step is you've got to be willing to go work. And uh, part of that uh, being willing to surrender our will, to uh, allow ourselves to be used by God over the course of our life involves care for other people, involves you know, following the implications of the gospel in our relationships. I think it involves praise for the way that God is at work in our life and giving us purpose and so on. You know, way back in the Psalms, in Psalm 40 and verse 8, uh, the psalmist says, I desire to do your will, O oh my God, your laws within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I desire, I delight to do your will. I'm joyful, I'm excited about the possibility to work in something that has eternal value and will last forever. And so the first thing I notice about this verse 28 in Jesus' direction uh, to these two boys, to these two sons, is that um, there's work. There's a lot of work to be in. There's plenty of work for everybody. Are you working someplace for the sake of the kingdom? The second thing I notice uh, about this is that the work that God is calling us to do is work in God's vineyard, God's kingdom. You know, go to work in the vineyard. It's work for God. Now, I think lots of people are working. In fact, it's a hallmark of our society that people are busy. There's lots of activity. But is what's being done being done for God? Are disciples really being made? Are lives really being transformed? 
are the people uh, who are far from God being brought into a relationship with God through Christ? Is the Bible permeating people's lives? Is the prayer cover sufficient? Is the tithing creating resources? Are the workers joyful about what they're doing in the Father's vineyard? We don't want to be like the second son who says, sure, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, and then just do my own thing. You know, do you know what God's will for your life is? Are you, do you know what your giftedness is? Are you aware of the passion that God has put in you and, and directing you, uh, and so on and so forth? It's work in God's kingdom. It's not just work, but work specific. The third thing I notice is that um, the need for the work is now. Look what it says, today. He goes to the two boys and he says, you know, I want you to work in my vineyard. When? Today. The need is now. Go to work today in the vineyard. Uh, one of the principles of leadership, I think, is do it now. Do it now. If God is speaking to you and God is directing you, do it now. So many people procrastinate. So many of us, you know, are waiting to get around to it. You know, we're waiting for tomorrow. Many of us. Should the Lord say, go and work in my vineyard today, I think wouldn't dare say, no, I won't. Many of us would, would, we would never say no. But when we put it off and put it off and we keep saying tomorrow, 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 aren't we effectively doing the same thing as that son did? We're forever postponing what God's asking us to do until we get to the point where the work is so piled up and the time to do it is so diminished. We're just like the second son. Somebody said, and this is a kind of a proverb, I don't know exactly where it came from, but tomorrow, tomorrow is the day on which idle men work and fools reform. Tomorrow. It's always tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to do something. Tomorrow I'm going to change. Tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, and so on and so forth. Our life is uncertain. Opportunities have limits. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, there are many places in Hebrews that uh, quote this from the Old Testament, but in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. The rebellion was when all of Israel wandered around for 40 years in the desert and all died without ever getting into the promised land. Because they heard the voice of God, but their hearts... Refuse to embrace. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. It's easy to sing. But it's something else when the Lord speaks into that heart, you know? And then finally, I think you'll notice in this story um, that the workers are sons. This isn't just an employee-employer type relationship. This is our heavenly Father who is the source of our life and who knows us well and who is to be trusted. And uh, the workers are sons that are being asked to go into the vineyard. If you're a Christian, you're a daughter or a son of the living God, call me Abba, God says. Call me Abba. Uh, God has called us into a family relationship in um, Ephesians chapter 2. You know, um, 
Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This isn't just like an employer who's asking you. This is your father. This is your eternal father who's got a plan that he's working over the course of our short little lifetimes. And he's got a place for us in it. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a job for everybody over the course of our lifetime. There's work to be done, and we are the sons of this heavenly father. Um, he's the source of our future. He's the source of our understanding. We're in pursuit of this God-first life. We should be like Jesus. Jesus constantly was saying this, I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. Remember Jesus always saying this? I must be about my father's business. We should be saying the same thing. I have to be about the business that my father has entrusted to me. Um, I must be about my father's business. So in this story that Jesus tells about the father and the two sons, I would suggest to you that neither son was commendable. That the true son of God, of the father, is Jesus, who both says, I will work in the vineyard, and then goes and does what the father asks him to do. The real son is Jesus. And I think Jesus tells this whole story and hopes that these leaders would get it as he explains who he really is, the real true son, um, who both you know, acknowledges the father's will and does it and says, I must be about my father's business. But also, nevertheless, this story, uh, the point is made that tax collectors and prostitutes and people who recognize their sinfulness are coming into the kingdom before uh, those religious types, those religious leader types who think that they don't have any sin that Jesus needs to deal with. Um, and they're entering the kingdom, and you say, well, why? Well, I would say because he who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven much loves much. That when we stop trying to prove that we don't need this great salvation that Jesus came to give, and instead embrace it because we are, you know, uh, we're worse off the religious leader types even than the uh, obvious sinful types. Um, he who's forgiven much loves much. Um, and we join this heavenly family, and when we do, we want to be workers in the vineyard. It becomes a privilege for us to represent the only news in the world, the only good news in the world that's capable of releasing people from despair and death. We become representatives of this powerful message that uh, God backs up by his spirit to go out into the world and release people from the despair and death that's all around from being trapped in hopelessness and sin and, and being welcomed into the very family of God, the spirit of the family, the promise of eternal life and so forth. Anybody can come, but nobody can come without repentance. Neither son was commendable. Jesus is the example of a God-first life. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's ongoing. Both sons needed to repent, but only one did. Both sons needed to repent. Well, um, I notice in the bulletin that we're going to sing this song uh, at the end of our service this morning, Take My Life and Let It Be. And uh, in the interest of just kind of backing up um, what Jesus is saying in this uh, story that he tells. When we sing this to God, you know, uh, we better mean it or we better not sing it, I think. 
Uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. You know, take my feet, take my voice and let me sing always only for the king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold. Take my love. My God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be, listen to this, ever only all for thee. Now, I thought about this. I thought, am I going to be able to sing this today? Because this is a giant I will, the song. This is saying to God, when the Father says, go into the world and make disciples, this song is like, I will. I'll use my hands, my feet, my resources, my life, my love. I'll give everything in the cause. I'll become a God first believer. This is saying I will. But if we're going to say I will and not do it, we just set ourselves up to be like these Pharisees that Jesus told the story about. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, uh, these stories, they're so simple, but they're so penetrating. And it's easy for us to kind of view from a distance and think about the immediate context about those religious leaders who didn't understand, you know, and, and refused to believe. And, you know, they, they saw the miracles. They saw the precise fulfillment of their own Old Testament prophecies. They had every reason to embrace Jesus, but they refused. And we too, Father, we see all that. We, we have all that knowledge. But when it comes to surrendering our will and offering up our hands and our feet and our lips and our resources and our love and our life, uh, we hesitate. And we're not completely, Father, uh, living what we profess. And so this morning, I pray that your spirit would just have freedom to uh, get into us in a deeper way and to cause us to, again, Embrace repentance as a lifestyle, that we all have something, Father, that you want to change, and that as we offer more of ourselves to you, you could have the freedom to use us according to the plan that you created us for. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to ask our uh, ushers if they'd come wait on us as we continue to worship this morning with the use of this song. Secret. 
shall be.